I'm assuming that Dr. Michael J. Stephen began work on his book, Breathtaking, The Power, Fragility, and Future of Our Extraordinary Lungs, long before SARS-CoV-2 unleashed a coronavirus pandemic on us. The book seems very timely, given that trouble breathing is a hallmark of the virus. But as he makes clear, the world has struggled with other pandemics that destroy our lungs, and our industrial world has a large role to play in lung diseases. The New Yorker piece we're going to read is actually a book review of Dr. Stevens' book, but it gives a lot of interesting information about the history of public health and medical interest in lungs, as well as an easy summary of how lungs work and what diseases up to present day pose challenges to these fragile organs. Reviewed by Brooke Jarvis and titled The Air in Here, this was published in the January 25th, 2021 New Yorker. For a man who died 97 years ago, Carl Flug had a very big 2020. We paid homage to him every time we waited in a socially distanced grocery line, used a homemade chute to deliver Halloween candy, or yelled six feet to a child wandering too close to a stranger. In an age of CRISPR and face transplants, one of the heroes of the coronavirus pandemic was a German doctor who in 1897 measured how far bacteria-laden spittle could travel from the mouths of volunteers. Six feet, he determined. And so, last year, that became the recommendation offered by caution signs around the world. In Sweden, please keep a distance about the size of a small moose between yourself and others. We've learned that our breath can sometimes carry the coronavirus much farther than six feet, but the number is still useful and seems permanently etched into our brains. We are all flugites now. Flug was obsessed with hygiene, and for good reason. In his day, there was little to offer the sick in the way of effective medicines, beyond, say, opiates or quinine, and few vaccines were available. The best way to be of help, some physicians decided, was to try to find out how to keep patients from getting sick in the first place. At the time that Flug was measuring droplet travel, New York City was overcome by a terrible respiratory disease. Tuberculosis, the city's leading killer, was claiming 10,000 lives a year. A local doctor, Herman Biggs, proposed actions that he believed could save lives reporting all TB patients to the health department and tracking everyone with whom those patients had been in close contact. Other physicians protested, calling the moves aggressive tyrannies and offensively dictatorial, so Biggs wasn't able to implement them fully. He also pushed for people to cover their mouths while coughing and for patients infected with TB to be isolated from healthy people. Twenty years later, even with no advances in medication, Biggs' careful attention to the sharing of air had helped cut the number of TB cases in the city in half. Eventually, effective antibiotics were introduced, and by the 1950s, TB was considered, in the United States anyway, to have been more or less conquered by modern medicine. But in the decades that followed, with the old precautions abandoned, the disease began to spread anew in New York. And there was an additional problem. Incomplete treatment could lead to strains that resisted the drugs. The number of cases per capita doubled between 1980 and 1990. 
The pulmonologist Michael J. Stephen writes about the debacle in his wide-ranging new book, Breathtaking, The Power, Fragility, and Future of Our Extraordinary Lungs. In a time when we had our most powerful antibiotics, New New York was doing worse than Dr. Biggs had done 90 years before, with education and no antibiotics at all. The story is a reflection of the remarkable fact that in the 20th century, an era of astounding medical breakthroughs, simple and relatively inexpensive public health interventions saved more lives than clinical medicine did. As a doctor of the lungs, Stephen is plenty interested in cutting-edge cancer therapies and treatments for such harrowing illnesses as cystic fibrosis, but he clearly sees his philosophical forebears in the likes of Biggs and Flug, and even their successor William Wells, who in the 1930s introduced sneezing powder and Balantitidium coli into the lecture halls and air conditioners of the Harvard School of Public Health, just to find out how far the bacteria could travel and still reach human lungs. All of them understood a basic truth, which, Stephen maintains, becomes more profound the more you think about it. The atmosphere is a communal space, and lungs are an extension of it. Our very breath ties us to one another and to the world around us. It's a lesson that we seem to struggle to remember. In countless languages and religions, breath is a synonym for life, as well as for the spirit or soul, and for good reason. The Earth spent some two billion years without oxygen in its atmosphere, bereft of life, beyond a few anaerobic microorganisms. Slowly, blue-green algae generated a buildup of oxygen, and so created the conditions that allowed for the grand explosion of biology on which nearly everything and everyone we know depends. Life and respiration are complementary, the English physician William Harvey wrote in the 17th century. There is nothing living which does not breathe, nor anything breathing which does not live. He was overlooking anaerobes, of course, but the gist was right. Even plants respire in a process separate from photosynthesis. Animals, such as jellyfish or earthworms, which lack respiratory systems, breathe through their skin. A dried-up worm on the sidewalk is dead because it has suffocated. Our very distant ancestors, having started with something more or less like a fish's swim bladder, developed lungs a highly efficient mechanism for exchanging internal gases for atmospheric ones, and took to the land. It's a beginning we each reenact on the day we are born. Though other organs function in utero, independent life starts the moment that our fluid-filled lungs inflate for the first time with our own breath. And yet, Stephen argues, we have consistently overlooked the importance of our lungs, and not just by giving hearts all the glory and love songs. The details of our ordinary breathing, pacing, depth, and so on, get little attention in modern medicine, but Stephen tells us that breathing exercises of the sort long promoted in Buddhism and Hinduism may improve not just respiratory conditions, but also depression and chronic pain. Some studies suggest that they can combat the damaging effects of stress, 
Stephen says that mobilizing the power of the breath has also been shown to turn on anti-inflammatory genes and turn off pro-inflammatory ones, including genes that regulate energy metabolism, insulin secretion, and even the part of our DNA that controls longevity. The breath of life, indeed. Meanwhile, diseases of the lungs, which have often been stigmatized as dirty, have trouble attracting research money and attention. Ignored, underfunded, and forgotten, this is the medical history of lung diseases, Stephen writes. You've likely never heard of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, though it affects more Americans than cervical cancer and has a much lower survival rate. Lung cancer is, by far, the deadliest cancer in America, but other cancers receive significantly more funding. Even as deaths from traditional killers, such as heart disease and cancer, are largely in decline in the United States, mortality from respiratory diseases is rising. And this was true before we lost hundreds of thousands of Americans to COVID-19, which kills most of its victims through acute respiratory failure. Cases of asthma increase every year, and globally, so do cases of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which is associated with smoking, but also afflicts people who have never smoked. Lung cancer, too, is becoming more common among non-smokers. In the United States, someone is diagnosed roughly every two and a half minutes. Worldwide, respiratory problems are the second most common of death and the number one killer of children under five. We tend to think of a lung as a simple pump. One gas is pulled in, another is pushed out. In fact, Stephen writes, it is an organ alive with immunology and chemistry, one that does an extraordinary amount of work under extreme stress from the moment we enter this world. With each of the roughly 20,000 breaths we take in a day, air travels through convoluted passages that can stretch for 1,500 miles to one of the approximately 500 million alveoli, tiny clustered air sacs that each of our lungs holds. Oxygen moves from the lungs to the bloodstream as carbon dioxide flows back to the lungs. The brainstem controls the balance, which must be just right. Gas exchange has a remarkably immediate and intense effect on the body. One reason cigarettes are so addictive is the speed with which inhalation delivers drugs to the brain. When you hold your breath, what feels like hunger for oxygen is really your body's reaction to too much carbon dioxide, which turns blood acidic. When you breathe into a paper bag to quell a panic attack, it works because hyperventilating has tipped the balance in the other direction, leaving you without enough CO2. Lungs are a paradox. They are so fragile that an accumulation of the tiniest scars can rob them of their elasticity and function, so delicate that one of the pioneers of pulmonology solved a long-standing mystery about a deadly neonatal lung disease in part by reading a book about the physics of soap bubbles. Yet unlike our other internal organs nestled away inside us, they are open like a wound to the outside world. The respiratory system is regularly attacked by pathogens to say nothing of allergens and pollutants. 
As a result, our lungs are home to vast numbers of protective cells that patrol them like sentries and a lining of tiny hairs that constantly move a layer of cleansing mucus upward, ejecting all the invaders they can. Our lungs are both protection and portal, the nexus of our relationship with an environment that can heal us as well as harm us. In their deepest recesses, a wall as thin as a single cell is all that separates us from the world. In December of 1952, a temperature inversion, a relatively common wintertime meteorological event, developed in the skies above London, trapping cold air under a layer of warmer air. Because the air could not escape, the already terrible pollution of the city grew so concentrated that in some areas, people could no longer see their feet. Buses and cabs stopped running because of the poor visibility, and some people blindly wandered into the Thames and drowned. The air quality was such that even indoor events had to be cancelled, and the press reported cows dying of asphyxiation. For five days, amid what became known as the Great Smog, Londoners got to know, too intimately, everything that the city emitted into the communal atmosphere, including coal smoke from factories and homes, which mixed with fog and generated sulfuric acid. Enormous numbers of people were hospitalized, and in the weeks and months that followed, an estimated 12,000 died. Undertakers ran out of caskets. For centuries, there had been failed attempts to reduce coal burning in England, among them a ban in 1306 by Edward I, who turned to fines, torture, and death threats. And in the 1660s, a report written for Charles II that warned about the effects of filthy vapor on this frail vessel of ours which contains it. But the region's famous air pollution was dismissed as simply the cost of modern life. Four years after the Great Smog, though, Britain finally passed a Clean Air Act and began its long, slow transition away from coal. In 2020, Britain set a national record by going 67 days, 22 hours, and 55 minutes without burning any coal for power, a first since the Industrial Revolution. In the U.S., several years before the Great Smog, a winter inversion trapped the residents of Donora, Pennsylvania, in a cloud of emissions from local zinc and steel factories, sickening nearly half the town. The resulting outcry led to the first federal efforts to address air pollution, although America's Clean Air Act wasn't passed until 1963. People learned the hard way about the lack of separation between themselves and what they breathed. Or not. In today's world, episodes like the Great Smog are less famous, but more common. In recent years, residents of cities from São Paulo to Sydney have watched as smoke from record fires, fueled by climate change and deforestation, has blotted the sun from the sky. In November 2017, air quality in New Delhi, a city that, like Seattle and Salt Lake City, is prone to winter inversions, was so bad that sensors tracking air pollution, including the level of particulates under 2.5 micrometers, which are small enough to travel deep into the lungs and even into the bloodstream, couldn't keep up. Levels above 200 are considered very unhealthy, 
most sensors maxed out at 999. Poor visibility caused a huge pileup of cars on a highway, and Delhi's chief minister tweeted that the region had become a gas chamber. But it wasn't an isolated event. Last winter, government officials in Delhi canceled flights, shut down schools, and declared a health emergency because of air pollution. Millions of children are now believed to have irreversible lung damage, and a local surgeon told the Times that he no longer sees pink lungs, even among young non-smokers. We're still learning all that air pollution can do to our bodies. It can cause not just lung diseases and impaired lung development. In Los Angeles, researchers found that they could track the progress of anti-pollution measures by the increasing size of children's lungs, but also indirectly heart attacks and osteoporosis. For first responders who breathed in clouds of dusty air following the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center, many of them without wearing protective masks, health problems often came in three waves. First, there were persistent coughs, and then a few years later, asthma, sinus inflammation, acid reflux disease, COPD, and pneumonia. Finally came cancer, heart disease, and stroke. In the U.S. today, our bad air comes not just from industry, but from industrial agriculture, with its emissions of ammonia, hydrogen sulfide, methane, and the like. According to some research, the two cause about the same number of air pollution-related deaths each year. 46% of Americans live in counties where the air is considered unhealthy, raising the risk of disease and early death, with the brunt borne by poor people and people of color who are likeliest to live in the most polluted areas. We know the dangers, and we also know that according to the World Health Organization, more than 90% of human beings live in places where we breathe substandard air. Yet this knowledge doesn't much stir us. It feels symbolic that according to the EPA, air pollution has decreased the distance and clarity of our vision, even in protected natural areas, and even in our post-Clean Air Act country, by as much as 83%, depending on where we live. We fail to notice how much the air we breathe is literally shrinking our own horizons. This past summer, the streets erupted in protest after a white police officer slowly and calmly asphyxiated a black man named George Floyd by restraining him with a knee to the neck. Floyd repeated a phrase that other victims of police violence had said before him, and that took on an extra resonance amid a respiratory pandemic in which people of color in part because they were already breathing the nation's most dangerous air, have suffered disproportionately. In the annals of surgery, Sanford E. Roberts, a black surgical resident in Pennsylvania, wrote that the parallels of the situation, of patients gasping for air while protesters chanted, I can't breathe, were striking and suffocating. The atmosphere may be a communal space, but its risks aren't evenly shared. 2020 was full of grim jokes about what an awful year it was, sentient almost, weaponized against us. It began with fires in Australia that suffocated untold numbers of animals and sent coughing people fleeing into lakes 
as well as an announcement that a pneumonia of unknown cause was circulating in Wuhan, China. As the year went on, the dangerous imbalance of gases that we've created in the planet's atmosphere contributed to the most active Atlantic hurricane season in history, along with record rainfall in some places and punishing droughts in others. In Brazil, rainforests and wetlands burned. It was a relentless litany of news that began to seem united, not just in awfulness, but in theme. There is no escaping the air that we share. On the west coast of the United States, where I live, wildfires sent the smoky remains of trees and houses and lives swirling across thousands of miles. You could drive for hours and never see anything but smoke, which turned our usual bluebird summer skies disquieting shades of orange and gray and rendered the air toxic. It was another grim joke. It wasn't safe to breathe outside because of the smoke, but it wasn't safe to breathe inside either because of the pandemic. The air had never felt so communal, nor these vessels of ours which contain it so frail. We have time for one other short article. This comes from Health and was written by Maggie O'Neill, published on September 20th, 2019. And it seems odd to read it and have it make no mention of the COVID virus, but it wasn't on our radar then. This is titled, What is Acute Bronchitis? Here's How Doctors Explain It. What is acute bronchitis and what are the symptoms of it? So, bronchitis is a condition in which the airways in the lungs, aka the bronchial tubes, become inflamed. And there are two types, chronic bronchitis and acute bronchitis. Just FYI, chronic bronchitis is often part of a serious condition called chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD, and lasts a few months and comes back more than two years in a row. Acute bronchitis is a shorter, less severe version, and it's more common than chronic bronchitis. When people refer to having bronchitis, they are typically referring to acute bronchitis. Emily Pennington, MD, a pulmonologist at Cleveland Clinic, tells Health. The key symptom of acute bronchitis is a cough, and it can get pretty bad. The symptoms of acute bronchitis include an acute onset cough that may or may not be accompanied by phlegm production, says Dr. Pennington, who adds that the phlegm can be clear, white, yellow, or green. Most patients with acute bronchitis also complain of a tightness in chest when breathing and have a low-grade fever. Isaac Namdar, MD, an otolaryngologist at Mount Sinai West in New York, tells Health. Dr. Namdar adds that one symptom of chronic bronchitis is feeling like you can't catch your breath, though it should be said that that can be caused by a number of health issues. What causes acute bronchitis? A very small number of cases are caused by bacteria, Dr. Pennington says, but usually a common cold virus is the culprit. Acute bronchitis is most common during fall and winter, as that's when respiratory viruses peak. Acute bronchitis can also be caused by breathing in things that irritate the lungs, such as tobacco smoke, fumes, dust, and air pollution, according to the American Lung Association. 
Doctors typically diagnose bronchitis based on a physical exam at the doctor's office combined with the patient's clinical history. Providers may order additional testing if they suspect you have the flu or pneumonia, says Dr. Pennington. As far as determining whether or not your bronchitis is bacterial or viral, you can't determine that by looking at your phlegm, says Dr. Pennington. One of the common misconceptions is that yellow or green phlegm means that you have a bacterial infection and need antibiotics, she explains. But this is not true and does not correlate with having a bacterial infection or responding to antibiotics. Some people also have a heightened risk of having acute bronchitis, like people with compromised immune systems, symptoms, chronic lung disease, infants, current smokers, the elderly, and young children. Also, people who have had close contact with someone else who has a cold or acute bronchitis are at an increased risk, says Dr. Pennington. The good news? Since acute bronchitis is usually the result of a common cold virus, you probably don't need to take antibiotics to make it go away. In fact, it usually goes away on its own within one to three weeks, according to Dr. Pennington. But you might be prescribed antibiotics if your acute bronchitis is caused by bacteria. As far as symptom management goes, patients should focus on getting lots of rest and drinking plenty of fluids, says Dr. Pennington. Cough relief or decongestant medications can help with symptom relief, she adds. Dr. Pennington says that while acute symptoms last one to three weeks, that cough can, for some individuals, linger for six to eight weeks. It's important to remember that even if you're feeling healthy otherwise, that lingering cough can make workouts difficult to breathe through for weeks after having been diagnosed with acute bronchitis. As far as prevention, you can follow some simple steps to minimize your chances of having acute bronchitis. Dr. Pennington says washing your hands often for a full 20 seconds with soap and water or using an alcohol-based hand sanitizer can help you avoid acute bronchitis-causing germs. Additionally, keep unwashed hands away from your nose, eyes, and mouth, get enough sleep at night, eat plenty of fruits and vegetables, and try to avoid people you know are sick. And if you're the one who's sick, stay home from work or school to prevent other people from getting sick, says Dr. Pennington. Remember, the elderly and young children are more at risk of getting acute bronchitis than the rest of us. Your meeting at work probably isn't worth putting them at risk, right? As for long-term damage, data regarding long-term outcomes after acute bronchitis is limited, Dr. Pennington admits. But after multiple rounds of acute bronchitis, some patients might develop mild asthma, she says. However, it's not clear if those patients already had mild asthma, which put them at higher risk for acute bronchitis, or if recurrent acute bronchitis led to the development of asthma. And that came from health.com. There you have today our fragile and wonderful lungs. Thank you for tuning in to Sound Body. Please stay well. And come back next week for more healthy living ideas.